You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. Today's focal passage is in the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Turn with us in your Bibles, or we have it on the screen as well. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated, and any children here may be dismissed to classes. Good morning. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. It's like a middle school cafeteria around here. It's fantastic. Would you pray with me? And then we will uh, we'll jump in. God, thanks for your gifts. Thank you that we get to be your people Thanks for these people, and even just this morning, walking around and hearing just conversations and kids running around and people sharing life and burden and prayers, and and then we get to sing with one another and and to you and about you, and we get to sit under your word and and be torn down and confronted and, and comforted and, and conformed and, and, and built up by your word. Would you do that in us and through us today? Would you show us that even, even though our contribution is, is the rebel who tears down all that you've made good, but, but you are a God who makes all things new, would you remind us of that today? Would you show us that? Would you let us behold those truths today that we might delight in your restoration and delight in your good nature as you make all things new. In Jesus' name, amen. It's, it's one of my greatest honors in my life to this date. The first month of fifth grade, I was nominated for the coveted teacher-selected Madison Junior School Student of the Month. And uh, I mean, like, welcome to middle school. And I remember thinking, like, dude, the first one. Like, I'm here and I'm killing it. Like, this is so good, right? 
Um, and so among the questions that I had to answer, there's some press appearances and other things, and, and uh, among the questions I had to answer for the student-led newspaper, Hawk Talk, we were the Madison Mohawks, right? Uh, one of those questions sticks out. It was, what is your favorite TV show? And that was easy. I, I remember saying to the person interviewing me, easy, home improvement, done, let's move on. And so home improvement, if you don't know, is Tim Taylor, Tim the Toolman Taylor, uh, Jill, Randy, and uh, one of the Lion King characters, and, and Brad. And there's another kid, I can't remember his name, he's not important, but there's the neighbor, Wilson, right? And you never saw his face, only like this part of it. And I just, I knew this was going to be the show, everyone, that like they're going to show his face, but they never did. So that's what happened in fifth grade. Fast forward to modern times, every summer we vacation to Michigan, incidentally, home of Tim Allen and Tim Taylor. But, so we, we go to northern Michigan, and some, we stay in some cabins, family stuff or whatever, and we fish, and it's pretty low-key. There's not a lot going on. There's not really any internet, and there's like one or two channels on each of the TVs, and one of them plays about three shows all day long, and one of those shows is Home Improvement. So the summers are great when we go up there, and one of the episodes that I saw just a few months ago was it was about Tim's first car and so he's like filming an episode of Tool Time and he goes to the junkyard and he's like hey man that car that's getting ready to be like recycled and smashed and put into the big machine thing and made into like a cube or whatever he's like that looks like my first car and he's like that is my first car and it was like rusted out you know like junk or whatever and so it's getting ready to go into the thing he's like don't don't like and so he goes home and he's talks to his wife and he says like, man, I, I want to get this car and I want to restore it. You know, I, like it, it was my first car. Like, and she's like, what's the big deal? Like, why would you want to do that? You're always restoring cars or whatever. And he's like, no, I want to. And, but she kind of like wasn't having it, having it. And so she talks to Wilson, the neighbor and Wilson's like, well, Jill, you know, like uh, a, a man's first car, you know, it's, it's more than just whatever and, it, and ties it to like the emotions that he had and like the, the, this like uh, passage, uh, rite of passage into life and all these things. And she's like, oh gosh, I, I just thought it was like a heap of rust. So she goes to Tim, she says, hey, you like, let's do it, like get the car. And so he goes to the junkyard just in time to see it put through the recycle thing and smashed and it's like, you know, ah, you know, tears, whatever. So he explains to Jill, like, uh, wh why that meant so much. And, and so she's like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to make it right. So she gets a magazine, not on the internet, because that wasn't even a thing, like a magazine. And she finds, like, the same year, it was a 1966 Corvair Corsa. And she finds one that's totally restored, and she gets it. And so he comes home, she says, come and look in the garage and he's like oh my wow like she's like same year it's it's your car it's completely restored you don't even have to do anything and he's like thank you like but this isn't my car it's not my car he's like it was never about the type of car it was about you know and, and he he like reminisces it was it was about the relationship to that particular car about the moments that I shared with that car he he wanted to restore it and he wanted to renew it and and not overpay for this one that's already been restored. By the way, we need to take this back, he says, you know. And so, like, it, it's, it was never about this, thank you so much, but, but, but we're not, you know, we don't need to overpay for one that's already been made new. For me, it was about restoring the one that I had. And, and that is precisely where Tim Taylor meets the God of Hosea today. 
mid-700s BC, God has instructed his prophet Hosea to marry Gomer, a woman of promiscuity. And, And he does that because Israel, which is it's a little more complicated, but when you read about Israel, most of the time we're talking about God's people. So God's people, Israel, they're trending towards an end where they will be smashed and discarded. And they're bringing it upon themselves. And he connects Gomer's lifestyle to that of Israel to paint a, a picture of the way Israel is treating God. They're disrespecting their relationship with him. They're running to other gods. They are an unfaithful bride. And so he's, he, he instructs this marriage to, to paint a picture. But, but God doesn't just blast judgment on his people. He warns them of what their life without him will lead to. And he, and he lays breadcrumbs of promise to find their way home. And, and he invites them to come back home so that he might restore them. They're living a life unto themselves. They're living a law unto themselves. But God is eager to renew his rebellious bride. So kind of the big idea is is even after the rebel tears down, God makes all things new. Like this is true in a thousand ways. But as we're kind of navigating this, this book of Hosea together, it's full of sadness and it's full of difficulty, but it's bolstered by hope. And what we see is as we discover these people and, 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 and how God interacts with them, we see different people, we see different times, we see different names, we see a lot of stuff that just doesn't make any sense to us, and so we have to do a little work. But what we see is, is these people have the same heart issues, the same tendencies to, to, to drift away from the Lord, and we see that this God is the same God the one who, who longs to invite us in that he might restore us and build us up. And so the first of two points today, the first one is this, the rebel tears down. So before we kind of jump into the focal text where, where Dave read, I want to just back up just two verses up until this point, chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's, it's a lot of negative with like a little bit of hope. And in and, and, and the middle of chapter 2 and verse 14, there's like this big shift that turns around. And it's filled with hope. And so it looks like this. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. This her is Israel. It's God's people. And, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And then we go down, he says, And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And so he's, he's pointing back to the time in which they committed vows to one another, God and his people. And that happened after he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And they were in the wilderness. And they had this, this moment where, where he said, I, I am yours. Like, will you be mine? And they said, God, we will be yours, and we will be your people, and we will follow you, and we will obey you, and we, we know that you're God, and we will live according to your ways. That was the, the vows that they committed to one another. And so, so we see this, I will lead her to the wilderness in that day. I will allure her. God is, is making this commitment to like whatever it takes. Like we're in this together, and, and, he, and he says he will speak tenderly to her. It's demonstrating like the warm, intimate character of God to his people as in the day that she came out of Egypt. Now what's sweet about 
reading the Bible is the Bible is a story of God and his people cover to cover. And it's more than that, but, but it's not less than that. And, and they lived it page by page, just like you and me. Like, you did something today, and, and tomorrow your life will probably look very similar to today, and the next day very similar. And yet, throughout time, like, things, things change, and there are moments. And so they lived page by page just like us, but we read chapter by chapter. So we get to see these big arcs of their whole life maybe shows up in, in three chapters or whatever. And so the more that we can get into this book and see how God relates and see how his people interact with him, then the greater capacity we have to understand this God that loves us with all that he has. So in 2000, I think it was like 2015 or 16, the Grams, me and Kim and Titus and Ireland, we went to Tennessee to a, a family reunion. Like my dad's side, we have a ton of family down there. And so while we were down there, we're like, man, let's go to like Lee University. It's where we, we spent our freshman year in college. And like, let's, let's just show the kids. They were like six and seven-ish. And so we went there and like a, a few weeks into our freshman year, I, I proposed to Kim, right? Proposed marriage to Kim. In, in 2000, like a, a literal 100 years ago. <laughs> so we got to say, like, we got to tell the story. And so we, we you know, showed the kids, hey, this is, where, this is where I live, and this is where your mom lived. And, like, and then we're, like, walking, and, like, this is where, like, it happened. You know, this is where, like, Dad proposed to Mom, and I'll show you a picture. I even, like, fake proposed to Ireland as we told the story. See, that's, that's it right there. She's so surprised, right? <laughs> And that next picture is like Kim and I like, um, hey, look, there we are. So that's like, you know, 15, 16 years after, like we had that moment where we committed our life to one another, not marriage, but, you know, you know, engagement or whatever. And so sweet memories for Kim and I, 16 years after we made that commitment to live life together. This is exactly what God sets up here. It's a recommitment of vows. It's, hey, remember how we weren't, but then we came together and we said, let's, let's make this a thing and let's live life together according to who we are. Me being God, you being my people. Let's go back into the wilderness. So, so he literally, he, he says, and I will take you back there. But the reason that he did that, the reason why he had to recommit wasn't that he was faithless or that he was unfaithful to any of his commitments. It was because they were broken. Things were broken. They had abandoned him. The, the marriage had gotten difficult and they were, they were on the rocks and, and everything that God's people did were, was tearing down not only the foundation of their relationship, but also the world around them as they lived a life in community, not according to the prescription that God gave for humanity to flourish, loving him, loving one another, loving neighbor, loving enemy. And, and when we don't do that, foundations crumble. I mean, it's, it's what the word rebel literally means. It, it's one who rises up in opposition against an established government or ruler. Now, under righteous rule, that is, our God is righteous, that means it's the one who goes against the way things ought to be. Now, I get that Star Wars, the rebels were like the good guys, right? 
But that's because the people who were running the empire were not. But that's not our case. And so in our case, the, the rebels are the ones tearing down the good order that God has established. And, and here's what that means. It means this is why things are broken. And if you don't, if you don't know that, I want you to know that God set things up and it was good. And he showed us how to live in light of who he is. He showed them how to live life together in community. And when we rebel against God's prescribed ways, when we rebel against his, his love and, and all the things, that's why we interact. That's why we, we read the news. And that's why we see things all around us. And that's why we navigate life. And, and nearly weekly, we would say, like, just look and say, gosh, Things shouldn't be this way. You are right. Things shouldn't be this way. But we live among a bunch of rebels. That's the point. And so, so, so as we read on, we read in, in 16, this kind of, the words of this recommitment. And in that day, he's talking about in the future, after Israel is, is wiped out, He's offering this hope in the future. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. I'll talk about that in a second. For I will remove the names of the Baals, the false gods, from your, from your mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. All of, your, all of the lovers that you're drawn towards, like I'm, I'm going to wipe them out of your memory. And it's just going to be us again. And I will make them... For them a covenant on that day with the beast of the field. And he goes on, the creeping things, all the things. I will abolish the bow and the sword and, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. So this is at that time. You'll address me, dear husband. I know you're away from me right now. But there is coming a time where you will address me, dear husband. Never again will you address me as like... I think the NIV translates this like my slave master, which is weird. But, but the, what's happening here, there's a double meaning for the word Baal or Baal is the way that it's usually pronounced if we speak a different language, right? Um, the double meaning is that, that it's either a false god, but sometimes in the Bible, they refer to God as Baal. Like a, a very few times. Most of the time it means a foreign false god. But it also can mean slave master. And so he's saying, he, he's overcoming the double meaning. It reflects the myths of Israel and the restoration of God. It's, it's this generic, the Lord. But, but what he's saying is, I am not uh, one of your false gods. I'm not one of the, the foreign lovers. And I'm also no longer your slave master. You will call me my husband. So he's tearing down all of the misconceptions and he's talking about this intimate relationship that, they, that God will have with his people. See, to this point, we've seen God show his bride the result of her current path trajectory. And what he's saying is, so long as you live as the rebel against our vows, against my established, uh, established order, those things will lead you to destruction. And that will happen in two ways. That will happen naturally. As you live against the way that I have described for, for this life to flourish, 
you will find natural results that are broken. And secondly, you will face my very real justice and judgment against the sin that you're committing against me. This, this destruction and this judgment, it cannot be stopped while you are in rebellion, not by the bow. No one can stop me. That's what he's saying. The sin of God's people, it seems to be not that they have forsaken God entirely. It's not that they just abandon him. But it's that they've added others into their family. It's not that they just, just left. It's just they've invited others into their home, right? The, the name of other gods has been on her lips. That's what we read. And Israel has worshipped and dined with other gods. There's a family meal. It's, it's the bride, Israel, and the Lord. And who's, who's this guy? Who have you invited to our, to our table? That, that's what's happening here. And what he's saying is, is that will end in time. So what is at play here is a word that some of you might be familiar with and some of you might not be. It's, it's this idea of syncretism. And syncretism is basically, it's S-Y-N-C-R-A-T-I-S-M, right? Syncretism. It's the mashup of different religions and different worldviews. It's, it's a heart that worships worships many types of gods. It's like uh, this idea is still in play today. It, it, it happens when one believes in a God who, who lays out a relationship and the way of life according to the scriptures and his people claim parts of his word and yet they swerve from his established way. And that, that happens not only when someone prays in the name of Jesus but also prays to, to beads or saints or assumes power from crystals or stones or building a life uh, around zodiac signs. All that is, is this. It's, you can't live according to this and do those things. Like that, that, that's syncretism. It's syncretistic. You're, you're trying to have an a la carte version of, of a life with the Lord by adding other stuff in. And, and God's he's not having that. Not then and not today. And, and it happens even, even more simply than that. When we pray in the name of Jesus and, the, and then yet we disobey his word to do what we think is best. We just grab a little bit and we say, yeah, like what are the things in here that are like the good stuff and it tells me how to, to love and all those things, but, but I don't really want to hear the hard things. Like I'll make my own determination. And you're saying, well, I'll have some of this and then I'll be God over some parts of my life. And what God's saying is like there's not a category for that for us to be in relationship together. As I was writing these words this week, I got like a, a Facebook notification from someone in the neighborhood that I live in. And this is what it said. And I, I, it just made me think like, wow, because you think that those things are just, they're worshiping false gods, like people don't do that. But then, then this is what it says that, hey, I, I'm, this is not a promotion either. Like, I'm not inviting you to follow up to this. Uh, hey, I'm offering free readings. 
love, relationships, general, quick messages, guidance, pregnancy and fertility, career, financial. I also offer an in-depth, uh, in-depth readings. Readings are under $20. You can't beat the price. And I thought, <laughs> and yet I, I know people that, that claim the name of Jesus and would be like, oh, like work has been tough. Maybe she knows something I don't. 20 bucks, you can't beat that price. And it's, it's garbage. Now, undoubtedly, Israel was, was coming down from their best life now and from every day of Friday, right? They were blessed and, and things were good. For once, in their life, they were somewhat fitting into the culture around them by the blessing of affluence and some, some level of kind of societal comfort. They were, they were like fitting in a little bit. They had prosperity, and that prosperity led to complacency in, in regards to the relationship with God, which led to adultery and abandonment of their God and their vows. Now, there is great benefit of God's people to understand the culture around it. Like, we call that contextualization. We throw the word around a lot, right? Read a book on church planting, there's probably a chapter or two on it. <laughs> like, it, it means just we have to listen to the, to the world around us, and we see it in Scripture. We see Paul show up in Athens, and he walks around for a couple of days, and he's like, wow, I, I see what these people worship. And then he responds, and he's like, hey, you know, on one of the statues, you had the words, like, to an unknown God, well, here, I'm here to tell you who that God is. Like, that's contextualization. We get to do that. The, the saying is old that we have to have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other or a phone or whatever. Like, the idea is, like, you can't just be completely isolated. Like, you have to get at the people around. You should know what your coworkers value. It's like one of the questions that I ask when, and probably ask people in this room, like, when I'm, like, trying to get to know someone, is like, hey, like, so what are you about? And they're like, what am I, that's different than like, what do you do for work? Or like, what are you about? Because whatever it is that they say, you're probably going to find out like, what are these people, what are they about? But, but maybe the question is really like, what do you worship? Or what do you live for? All that good stuff in there, right? But there is danger in contextualization as well. There's danger in that. And, and this kind of hits on the line between Tim Keller uh, he talks about the dangers of contextualization, and, and he uses the word syncretism and compromise interchangeably. A few words that he says. I want to talk about this for hours. I don't think I can do that, so here goes. This means not adapting the gospel to a particular culture, but rather surrendering the gospel entirely and morphing Christianity into a different religion of over-adopting or over-adapting it into this alien world. It's taking more of the world and letting the world shape what it is to walk with the Lord, right? He goes on, syncretism happens not by allowing the whole of Scripture to speak so that we ignore or downplay or deny non-essential teachings. I owe some of you a note here. You might have come into this church today or in the last month and said to yourself, why on earth 
are we spending all this time talking about Hosea, someone that I never even knew was in the Bible? Like, where are the red letters? <laughs> and where's, like, the stuff about Jesus? I totally get that. And what I want you to know is, is we preach through books of the Bible as a norm. We'll do thematic and topical here and there because that's appropriate at times. But we do that to remove ourselves as much as possible. I, I do that to remove myself as much as possible. Do you think that I said, oh gosh, like how are we going to grow a church and, and for me week after week to preach easy sermons? Let's go through Hosea. That's, that's not how that happened. It's, it's, it's actually hard. Because just when you hear these focal passages and you say, what is that? That's Monday for me. <laughs> and somehow we get here, right? I said, what is that? I don't know. But we do that because, here's the thing, Hosea isn't famous. Not like the other minor prophet, Amos. I just had to say that. But, but, but he, is, he is equally the word of God. And so we wrestle with the words in this 8th century B.C. prophet pronouncing judgment on Israel, and we do our best to get it, to connect it, to sit in the living room with these people. And then we get to say, what, does, what do these truths look like in my living room? That's why we do that. Because all of this is the Word of God, so we let the Spirit shape us with, with His words today so that it might confront us that it might conform us, that it might comfort us in knowing who this God is and the, the grace and the work of Jesus to, to our life in a way that they couldn't quite see because it hadn't been unfolded yet. So the issue in all of those things is, uh, Keller said some other stuff. He, he says, it happens when doctrines are abandoned one by one in order to adapt to a church's values or to the culture's values. And so my point is, it's not just all at once. It's little by little, a church community swerves from this being the foundation of life. Little by little, we say, yeah, let's not so much talk about kind of the, the lesser things and the more difficult things. Let's just preach on the things that everyone wants to hear and, and make sure that people leave encouraged. That's how we'll fill this building. But that, that's not what we're into. Or, or maybe like I'll, I'll, I'll adhere to this when it comes to salvation and stuff like that. But like cultural stuff and, and sexuality and, and marriage and, and the way that I deal with my money and those things. Like I'm just kind of going to do my, that's syncretism. That's what Israel was doing. So the issue is, is standard for truth. And the question is, is, is our God the God of all truth? Or does he have good ideas? That's what we have to figure out. Is he the God of all truth? And, and when I rebel against him, the demand is, is, is judgment for my sin? Or does he just have good ideas and yeah, it makes me feel better when I open the book from time to time and show up on a Sunday? That, that's what we have to figure out together. The problem is, where does this come from? And the issue is that God won't have it. There, there's none like him. And in the vows and the terms he sets up, the first ones was that you will have no other gods before me. It's me and you, or, or it's not. S sin is, is living as if God isn't. And all the implications that come from that. And the fruit of that is, is to go against 
his established good and rule and his prescription for the best life, eternal life, to love and to live in light of what's true. And, and like I said, to, to what we get to do as, as those who are in Christ is we get to love God and we get to love one another and we get to love our neighbor and we get to love our enemy. Sin isn't those things and sin breaks stuff. The rebel tears down and in this passage what we see is we see not that we don't, we don't see what they're doing, but we, we only get to glean in by seeing what part of their life God is restoring. That's where we see the broken places. So even after the rebel tears down, God makes all things new. Point number two. The rebel tears down and God builds up. It's like a, uh, if you ever read the Proverbs, it's just... It's just that over and over again. It's like, hey, these are bad things, but this is good things. And these are bad things, and this is good things. And this we see the rebel tears down, but, but God, God builds up. These words of promise happen after Israel is already destroyed in the future yet to come. He says, you'll be wiped away, overtaken by your complacent, complicit relationship with the other gods. You will follow your heart, and that will be your ruin you will follow your heart and you will find that your heart is bent towards sin and rebellion and your, your heart will lead you to destruction. But after that, rest assured, I will restore. Starting in verse 18, we read on. He says, I, I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety. It's a promise that he's giving them. And I will betroth you to me. That's literally the word for engagement. And, and I will engage with you. You to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And he goes on and, and he's undoing the children's names, you got to read some stuff in chapter 1, but, but he made some, some promises, and, and he told Hosea and Gomer to, to name their kids these terrible names like, like bloodshed and, and no more mercy and no more peace. And he turns this around, he says, in that day I will answer. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. I know you don't know what that's talking about. We'll get there in a second. And he says, and I, will, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and, and he shall say, you are my God. All that stuff is just, it's, it's what he's doing to restore all that they have broken. It's top to bottom. He says, no more bales, like, you will have no more relationships with other gods. You won't even remember their names. He, he hearkens back to creation and these beasts and the birds. He seems to point to a restoration of all created order. Just like in Genesis, when, when he made everything and it was good, here he's saying, and, and you all are kind of breaking that down, but look, I'm going to restore all things. All things. And he says, I'll abolish the bow, the thing that you thought brought you safety but, but ended up coming down on you. Israel will be destroyed, but he sees beyond that to the restoration of his people to a place where there is once again harmony and peace with the beasts and with the nations of the earth. 
Listen to these vows. He says, I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you will know me. He's talking about like know me. And it, it doesn't have to be sexual, but the idea is, is the most intimate that, that, that one can be with another. He's saying that's, that's what we have. And, and the emphasis is in this ongoing, it's not just a one and done. It's like this is, this is our forever life together. There's a good summary of all this. Uh, I'll throw it up on the screens. It's from um, the Tyndale Old Testament commentary. He says this, at, at its heart, <clears throat> this is a new Exodus experience. God will take his people back to the wilderness to where the relationship began, and there he will renew his commitment to them. He promises to the restoration of the blessings that have been removed, and again, the reversal of the judgment associated with the names of Gomer's children. He's undoing all the judgment, all the bad stuff, all the brokenness that they brought upon themselves, and he's making all things new. And here's what that means for you and for me. It means even after the rebel tears down, God makes all things new. The rebel, the sinner, it's not some outside boogeyman. When the Bible talks about sinners, apart from grace shaping us and renewing us, that's us. It's not uh, some them out there, but it's, it's me right here. That's who this, this rebel is, apart from the renewing work of grace in Christ alone. New is one of God's promises to us. New. In Revelation 21 John's seeing this vision. It's in the, nearly the very end of the Bible. And he says, Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said, You need to write that down because these words are faithful and true. Look, that, that's the promise laid before us far into the future. Certainly from the time that it was written. As believers, our hope ultimately rests in the promise that Christ will come back for us one day and make all things new. That, that all that ought not be will be once again restored to the way that it, that it ought to be. And at the same time, in the meantime, we are being made new by the work of Jesus applied to our life. We are being made new by the Spirit applying the life of Jesus to us, that we are knit to his righteousness by faith alone. So our identity is no longer rebel, no longer sinner, but saint, being made new, being transformed. Our hope is, is definitely a future hope. Our ultimate hope is a future hope, but it's founded on this, this hook of hope in, in two things. God restores he restores all things. All the bad will be undone. And the hope is, is that, that that has been established long ago. Because God resurrects. 
He, he took the worst that this world could offer, Jesus on the cross, and he undid it. All of this brokenness, all that the rebel deserves, all that the rebel brought upon our self, is seen in, in one image, the brutality of Jesus on the cross. He became broken so that we might be restored. So when we say the thing, Jesus has overcome the world, it's because he didn't stay dead. That he took, he took it all upon himself, and, and yet he overcame. It's, it's so easy for us to fixate on, on the past or the future. And we can minimize our own sin by, by not looking at the judgment that it deserves. And we can be like, yeah, you know, grace, whatever. Grace abounds, and it's okay. Or we can go the other way and we, we minimize grace by not believing that we need grace to have eternal life and peace with God. There's this uh, thought, it's not mine, but, but it's we have to get the, the windshield in the rearview mirror like in, in proper proportion. We have to look out of the windshield and know where we are heading and, and, and know what's around us and know what we are driving into as we live life. But we do get to keep like a mindfulness on what's behind us and what God has brought us out of and the life that we have lived and, 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 and why grace means so much to us as we continue on. And we can look at it, but, but it's not blocking our view. But some of us, we drive by looking at the rear view mirror. It's as big as a windshield. And we continue to make shipwreck of our life because we're constantly just looking back at the life that we've lived. So we bring shame and guilt. I can't be loved because look at me and look at the life that I've lived. Look at the brokenness that I've brought on whatever. Sin, as a sinner and sufferer, that's what dictates where we live our life. And, and what grace does is it, is it reshapes the life that we get to live. And it makes the rear view accessible when we need to look at it. But it's not everything Grace transforms the way that we live. Remember Tim Taylor, sunk with regret of what could have been, right? Mm. If, if only he had gotten to his car sooner and, and spared it from becoming a, a, a slab or a cube of steel and rubber and, and plastic and glass. Some of us see ourselves like an old heap of rust and metal cast aside because of the life that you've lived, lived the, the rebellion that you've lived, the suffering that's been brought upon you, but, but that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of your story. That's what Jose is trying to tell us. That's not the end. That's not so in the kingdom of God. We are sunk. We are hosed. We are worse than that rust bucket of a car smashed. We make scrap heaps of our life and our faith, but we have a great God who is able to restore, to take what is broken and to make all things new because God is creator of all things. He didn't just show up on the scene. He made you the first time. He knows what you are at your very best, and he's, he's conforming you to his image 
so that you might find your greatest amount of joy and bring him the greatest amount of glory. That is the work of Jesus in us. He alone is able to restore you back to who he has made you to be and to restore your relationship back to himself no matter what. No more guilt, no more shame, no more debt that we get to live out of. But the freedom of his life applied to us, his brokenness that, that allows our life to resurrect from these doldrums and live a life of joy and glory. The man can come on up. Be- because he lives eternally and free and, and glorified, because he, he reigns at the right hand of the Father, we too get to be recycled from our sin, not replaced, but reformed by the same resurrecting power that brought Jesus back from the dead. That's our hope. If that's not the good news of the gospel that we proclaim, then I don't know what is. So we say, so what? Well, because we have a God who renews and who rebuilds, because we are being rebuilt, because we are being made, made new, then we get to go. We are invited to renew and rebuild all that is broken. So we get to know that we live life with a bunch of rust buckets, every single one of us. And what we get to do is we get to say, hey, you don't have to live that way because there's one and his business is restoration and let me introduce him to you. I mean, we get to respond. You can sit right where you are. You can pray. You can sit quietly. You can stand up and sing with the band. There's a prayer bench over there if you just need some time to yourself. There's a tree back there. Someone would love to pray with you about anything. Anything that, that was said today or stuff that you're dealing with, we'd love to just bear weight. And if you are in Christ, you've submitted your life to his, and you said, I want to follow Jesus because of the love that he showed me. We get to take communion today, and it's, it's bread, and it's juice, and it represents his body that was broken, his blood that was spilled, that we don't take that for granted. But today, no matter what, we get to make right the parts that we've broken, and we get to restore relationships around us. We get to confess our sin and repent and believe, and we get to take this as, as a meal with Jesus and one another, as a reminder of his work and also as a declaration of his goodness to us. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you're not like us. But thank you that you have a heart that's for us. And no matter where any of this finds us today, your desire is to, to make all things new, and, and we are those things. And, it, and it's not about uh, you just having some people to live life with you. And it's not out of some void that you need us. We know that you don't. But God, your desire is for us that we, broken as we are, might be made new by your restoring love and power. Would you let us see ourselves rightly? Would you let us see our life rightly today? In Jesus' name, amen.